Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 8, Your Changes, Our Changes. Hello, welcome to Episode 8 of the Penny University's new series, Our Investigation, Our Truth. My name is Deborah Fingston. Uh, my son, Andrew Ashcraft, was on the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. I'm Doug Harwood. I work for, uh, I'm a Prescott firefighter, and I was on that crew and had some good friends on that crew. And also, we have a special guest tonight, my sister, Tasaya. Hi, my name's Tasaya. I worked for the Prescott National Forest from 2001 to 2004 on Engine 30 and in 2004 on the Prescott Hotshots. Thanks everyone for your thoughts, prayers, and comments. They've been amazing and they've uh, thought-provoking and they've helped us throughout this. Uh, we have a comment from a firefighter on a hotshot crew in California. He says, my crew was lucky enough to work with uh, Blue Ridge last summer, and on one of the slow days, the Blue Ridge Soup took time to speak to our whole crew about the events of that day. Between that conversation and listening to your podcast, I'm appalled by the failure of our original investigation. Not only was it an injustice to the perished firefighters, it's a disservice to our current firefighters as well. How are we supposed to learn any lessons from the tragedy if we don't know exactly what happened? We want to thank that firefighter for its message. Yes, thank you so much. Also, remember, if you have any specific questions or want some more information or just say hi, please email us at uh, pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. You could also email any of our guest speakers, too, and I can get them the messages. But I love the questions. We love the comments. They are um, really invigorate us. And remember, uh, this is a very raw experience, and sometimes our emotions get going, and words may not be appropriate for little ears, so just be prepared when listening. If you want to know what happened on June 28th, 29th, and 30th, please listen to episode 1 through 6. If you are interested in info about Granite Mountain, listen to their history on episode 7. Today we're going to be discussing changes that we see and others have seen that need to happen uh, within the wildland fire area, some that have been... These are just ideas that have been given to us or things that we have come up with. So here we go. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, training. And a big passion of mine is training for safety officers. I worked in, uh, I was program manager um, and recruiter, so forth, for a graduate studies program in uh, crash investigation. And so everybody for years took the safety officers kind of like, well, hey, Bob, you can be the safety officer today. And they took, you know, a couple six-week courses. And government and com big companies have discovered that that's not the way to do it, that you your safety officer is a big deal. And I think that that needs to change in the Forest Service. Fire um, safety officers need to have more aggressive training. They need to pass tests. Um, and their word needs to be powerful on fires. And I still hold true that no one should move on a fire until the safety officer is there. 
I don't want to any longer hear the excuse. That's not how it's, we used to do it. I don't want to hear the excuse that, well, we've got to jump on the fire right away. If a hotshot crew can get to that fire, then a safety officer can get to that fire. And we no just, one should move. We just need more of them trained. That's Absolutely. basically what it is. Yeah. And aggressive training where they have to test out of it, yeah. not just Bob sat in a class all day Saturday. Yeah, and we've talked to the, just more aggressive training in, in the wildland service in general. Like you said, a lot of those classes you go to are those same kind of, uh, like you said, Charlie Brown teacher classes. Not necessarily that the instructors are bad, but they have to go through these specific, they have to just read from these certain certain books that, you know, it's just not a, it's just not a, well thought out class a lot right. of times. Yeah, the classes have course material that's very antiquated and it's like you're just trying to fill time and they can make even the most interesting thing that firefighters are passionate about, like a class on chainsaws, torturous, because yeah. you have to get through it for the day. Well, I think the one time out of an email you sent, you said that they were tedious, boring, and most were taught by someone who didn't even care about making them interesting. Yeah, the, the instructors would have zero enthusiasm. So how are you supposed to pay attention to stuff that is very important, yeah. necessary, required, but you want to fall asleep in your class? You wish you could take that time back in your life. It's they didn't that have bad. Any, they didn't have any kind of, of um, instructor training. To be an instructor, I mean, right. you and might know a key. lot. You might know a lot, but if you're not a, if you're not, you don't know how to get it out there to people. Right. What's that going to do? Well, and some of that has to do with materials produced, but also research has shown. Again, I've been in education for years. Research has shown you have to confirm whether they know the material. How many times were you guys ever tested? You took a class and then they gave you a test that you had to pass, that you knew the information. Did that happen? I don't think any of those tests were ones that you had to pass in order to get your cert. And they were super easy. Yeah. Super easy tests. But I don't think I remember so. anybody ever failing a test. Okay, so, yeah. you know, the training and needs to be more aggressive. It makes a better person. And don't you want a better wildland firefighter on your crew? Yeah. And I know this is something I wanted to bring up later, specifically to the division level. That, that level of, of the person on the division, the division supervisor should be someone who is just a tactics superstar. And I, there, are lots of, there are lots of them out there that are tactics superstars. But there are a fair amount that are not, you would not want them to be the ones in charge of picking out the tactics for your fire. Right. I've seen so many um, just bad ideas that come from the from some of those division people that they just shouldn't they just shouldn't be doing those kind of tactics in the area that they're doing. Right. You know, I've sat in on a lot of classes and you guys have taken these classes. But I did sit in on one good class one time and it was over maps and but the instructor was passionate. You know, this young man wanted you to know what was going on, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's it's not a rarity to feel like the folks that are managing the fires don't know what they're doing. You brought up the they should be a superstar. They should know what they're doing. Um, in my short experience, just being a firefighter, not in any sort of leadership role, 
I noticed that more often than you would think, where you would hear your supervisor or your um, squad boss talking like the person who's in charge of the fire does not know what they're doing. So, And I've just, you know, I've, there's specific examples that we could talk about over and over, but just this tact the, the tactics they should they should know those inside and out and they should be able to, to put those on the fire at any time well we just had a huge conversation while we were just sitting getting ready to record and one of the things i threw out there is listen my husband's an electrician and he had an all-day test and he had to pass it and how attorneys have to pass their stuff they have to sit before a board and get questioned right and left to be an ic commander you should have required aggressive education, maybe longer shadowing uh, you know, while you're in that training. But then also, how about a test that you have to pass and a board that you have to question? When the crew became a type one, when they moved from a type two to a type one crew, they had those three guys with them through several trainings. Do IC commanders go through that? I don't know about it, but the divisions do. They they have okay. that sort of thing where they have to shadow somebody and they and they. But I think the testing idea is would be much more valid because right. then they have to pass that test. They can they can write a good test. Yeah. It would let you know if they know their tactics or not. And and place and in the test, what would you do in this scenario? Yeah. What would you do in this scenario? You know, they have to be the top of. One of the things I brought up is, you know, the military says it runs on um, warrant officers, run the military, because they've come up through the ranks. They know what's going on. And that's what IC commanders need. Yeah. And I'm not saying there aren't great IC commanders that have not been, you know, swung a Pulaski, let's say. And I, I don't even want to start bringing up red car Pulse. I think those need to be a little bit more than, hey, can you run around a track with a little pack on your back? Right. You know, red car. But they, they need to be, you know, the cream of the crop. They are running a massive action here. People's lives rely on them. When you guys were working in crews, who did you rely on? Yeah, everybody above you. Because you yeah. don't have your eyes on the fire, you know, you've got your little section you're working on, you're kind of t in a tunnel vision. Everybody's looking out for each other, but you are relying on the decisions of those above you. And if they're making poor decisions, they are making it unsafe for you. Yeah, and as you, as you when you're on those cruises, just like Desiah said, you see these other people that are above or supposed to be in charge of your crew that aren't making those good decisions. And it just, you know, you see it throughout your career, and it, um, it's not like you see it once in a while. You do see it quite often. Yeah. And since I brought the fact up of tougher red card qualification, um, I just think that's crazy. I have, t I, I think they started out really good, I guess, but we need people in shape on these fires. And you know what, 85, 90%, I think are. But I have also come across some people that I think they're a heart attack waiting to happen. And so out of the fire, that's not what you need. Yeah, and they could definitely do a test where they have them on a cardiac monitor or something like that just to see 
you know, you don't want pe- you don't want to kill people out on fires. You know, no. it's a bit safer for everybody. And we could also make two tests. You know, the, a test where they can go out on fires, but they're just going to be at the camp or right. driving around. You know, they're not really in a fire scenario. And then the pack test also. Because the pack test, what they put the pack test on, you, you run around the high school track, and under a certain time, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm sorry, that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people can pass the pack test that you wonder, <laughs> you you question. Well, because they can pass the pack test once, where maybe if you said something like, "Okay, you have to do this three times in a certain number of times," I don't know, but I really question some of that. Yeah, but it is it is a harder test than uh, some other tests that they've had. I mean, I, I think I think it could definitely improve for sure. Right. But they, it's tough to say. I think if they were actually monitoring people while they did it. I hate to like put someone on a treadmill because that's terrible, you know, that's right. terrible. But if you could like monitor people a little better while they're doing it, because every year you get people who will die doing the pack test also. Oh my gosh, so, that's, that's awful. Right. I mean, wow. we could do better for sure. Yeah, well, it needs to be done better. And one of the um, changes that came to us, when I say right now that it's out in left field, I don't, I'm not saying that it's a crazy idea. I'm just saying it doesn't, we were trying to figure out where do we fit it in, and it doesn't seem to fit in with all the other suggestions, but we believe it's important. And that is stricter rules for food services on fires. You know, so that you guys get good nutrition. And when we were reading through that, please share your stories, you two, with this. Well, I know there was, I mean, you go through fires where there's good good uh, food, good caterers and bad caterers and um, it's always awesome when you're on a fire where you have a good caterer that you, you just, you feel like every meal is a treat. <laughs> right. And you need that. That's yeah. your fuel. Absolutely. And you know, you can consume, when you're on a hotshot crew, you can, you can eat all day long if you had, if you were able to eat all day long and you're not, you, you just use it up. It's just gone. Right. Um, but the one time we, it is, there was other issue, other times, other fires that were, this was the worst I ever had was they gave us. Chocolate cake for breakfast. Ugh. That's oh what they delivered God. to us for breakfast. Okay, so you were only expected to work an hour, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another 16-hour day of chocolate cake, and lunch was going to come or be an MRE, basically. And it was, yeah, it was, some of the guys on the crew were pretty excited about that, but <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was terrible. Yeah, you can't work. You Th- can't. That's work unacceptable. Yeah. That really is unacceptable. Yeah, similar, just funny because it's, it's sad, but it's funny is on one fire for the Prescott hotshots, we got delivered three of our buckets, which are supposed to be different food items. Now, is All, a bucket like breakfast, lunch, dinner? I don't know no, what a bucket it's is. Just, you get, they drop off from like a meat, helicopter potatoes, vegetables, or... these buckets of food oh, okay. for you in that area. That sounds so appetizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's usually because you're way out in the in the. Distance yeah, because right. they have to helicopter it in. Okay. And all three of the buckets were angel food cake. So <laughs> so it's like a grocery store said, hey, we're, you know, we well, have, we're near the expiration someone date. else got three buckets of the main course of dinner, <laughs> and they oh. were probably very happy, but... Oh, yeah. man. They were, where's our dessert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when this suggestion came up to us... Uh, Billy Warnicky um, on the Grand Mountain Crew, his sister is a nutritionist. 
And one time her and I were talking about um, what would it take? And it doesn't take a lot of things. I mean, peanut butter or, you know, there's so many things that could just go out there quickly. Not that we want you eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but I think peanut butter would have been better than chocolate cake. Yeah. For and sure. There, and there's caterers that have snacks for you all day long. And there's, I mean, there's, there, there are awesome caterers out there. You right. just, you, some fires you get them, sometimes you don't. And that's where the stricter rule comes in. Absolutely. And so thank you who, who sent that um, stricter rules for food services. I agree. I think it's great. Um, so one of the things that I think should be required, and we've talked about, and we talked about it with uh, Chief Willis, um, Doug, you and I have talked about it many times when we walked out in here now, is that a wildland urban interface community should be required to have a wildland crew on their fire department, just like Granite Mountain. How Granite Mountain was said to be the gold star standard. And before this tragedy, they were looking at implementing that across the nation. And I believe it, they should at least have a type two crew. Yeah, I don't think, just like Granite Mountain would be hard for a lot of places right. to get to that, those kind of qualifications. But a type two IA crew would be awesome. They'd be there to help them with any fires that came along and be able to do all that fuels mitigation. I, I worry about requiring cities to do that because if you have a bad city government that's not going to support your, your crew, it's not going to be a successful thing and it could get somebody hurt. Right. You'd have to have a city that's willing to support that or some other way that it could be supported besides right. that city. And a lot of that comes with education. And... We've talked about before, it would be great to go into, have some type of group, whether it be the force or somebody that goes into wildland urban interface communities and teaches them, shows them, presents them the benefits. The possibilities. Right. And you think about all the workload that would take off the, the forest service now. They're not, they're headed, they have so millions of acres that they're supposed to be, or billions of acres probably that they're supposed to be taking care of. Mm -hmm. And they have to be focused around these urban, urban interfaces, mm -hmm. you know, then that's not really, then they can't focus on anything else. Mm -hmm. But if they can get these communities to take over for the work, do the work that they're supposed to be doing themselves, then the Forest Service can focus on their actual job. Right. Well, we just recently had a fire near us. And when you were standing at the Costco looking at the fire, you could also see where Prescott National Forest had just um, have been working really hard at doing a fuel break. And, and, and I thought, that is valuable. Now, if we could get that filmed, you know, if, we could, if people would know just how valuable that is. Yeah, and, and, and when you brought that up on the last episode about the fuels mitigation and, and that sort of thing in communities, I also thought, you know, a small chunk of that fuels mitigation could be part of that process could happen by utilizing forest service crews that are staging in the areas for fires. So what does that mean, so staging? That means when you have an area, a region or community that's at a high potential for fires happening, They'll call resources into that area because it's highly likely 
that a fire is going to start and you're it's quicker response because you're already in that region right we see that in this area you know i'll go out to the fries grocery store during fire season and i'll Mm -hmm. see crews in the store you know buying food or getting coke or a coffee or something like that so we see that around here yeah and i've been on a on the engine crew where for the entire period of time that we were out we were staging and you're if you had a plan of what you were going to do with that crew on those downtimes, it could take a chunk of that fuels mitigation work, you know, put those guys to work. They don't want to be sitting around doing So nothing. for 14 days, you're just hanging. Yep. Not I, always. Uh, not but always. There were a couple projects, but I remember playing a lot of ping pong at a fire station, yeah. you know, um, which is ridiculous. You've got a whole crew of people wait you know that does not want to be sitting around right they want to work and and we're not actively on a fire we're staging in the region why not put us to work and i know it has to do with fire money being fire money um, only designated for fires but there's got to be a some way where you can work with that it's it's a waste to have a whole crew sitting there doing nothing yeah it is and their equipment's just sitting there. Yeah. yeah. So why not use it for fuels mitigation around and sometimes communities? I know with when I was on Granite Mountain, we did a lot of project work when we were when they had us staging somewhere. We didn't seem like we were always doing project work. We didn't stage a lot. Maybe one day when they couldn't figure out where they needed us, but yeah. then they would send us. But the place you would have to go somewhere that had a plan. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to be staged somewhere that had some kind of idea of what they wanted done. You know. Yeah, they have to think ahead. You need to have some proactive plan for when when and if that happens. And like I said, it'd be a small chunk. It'd be a small chunk out of the bit because you don't have that happening all the time. But but most of the time, the the areas where you're staging, those people aren't aren't, um, stupid about wildland fire. You know, I mean, when the people are here staging in Prescott, the citizens know, you know, wildland crews know. I mean, they understand, you know, Prescott's a little bit more educated, I think, than other. Um, but wildland urban interface communities are—they're catching up, you know, because of things. And so, um, I, I think that's a brilliant idea. Brilliant. Yeah. So, um, another one was better and more oversight in on firing operations. I, Doug, that was your suggestion, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, there, there's so many things that you should have lined up before you start a firing operation before you start a backburn, um, before you start firing out something. It, and um, it just seems like there should be some kind of checklist. You know, have a solid anchor point. Have communicated with everybody. Have your weather forecasts done, your spot weather forecast for what's going to happen right then. Uh, do a test fire. Everything should be, has to be lined up, and there has to be some. We could make a form just as simple as that. Um, <laughs> trying to blank right now. The uh, um, gosh, shoot. <laughs> we could make a simple form, just a simple checklist form that would have everything on there that we would need. The complexity just, analysis? Yeah, just like the complexity oh, analysis. Oh, okay. Something wow, like, I finally knew yeah. something. <laughs> just as simple as that, that we could, you know, make sure everything's in order before you, before you burn and make sure everything's been communicated. You know, that reminded me of something that you were talking about earlier this evening, how you're now in the medical field, correct? Yes. So in in medical field, we have something that's very common. I think it's 
everywhere does it now. It's called a timeout. So if you have a surgical procedure or a you know bedside sedation for a procedure, it's a quick checkbox that you just performed a timeout. So everybody that's involved in the procedure, the doctor, the anesthesia, the nurse, um, you just check, do you have the correct patient that's diagnosis fits with this and you're doing the right procedure on the right limb. I mean, it's, it's common sense, but things get switched well, around. Well, stuff happens. And things yeah. happen. So it's a safety check. And with, um, with back burning on fires, I think you could implement something just like that, um, a burn timeout where you know that you're planning on burning this area because the IC command has told you that you need to burn this area. So while you're prepping and getting ready to burn before you lay fire on the ground, and it could happen, you know, you don't have to stop what you're doing to do this check. Your supervisor or lead crew could right. call this out. I think it would be important to have a tone like they do for the weather so that everybody stops and listens. Um, so you would tone and say, burn time out. And then like if you were the Prescott crew, you'd say, Prescott IC command, we're ready to burn southeast flank division delta. Um, and then that communication would then go to the IC because they have a list of who all is on the fire. And the IC would say, um, you know, Flagstaff crew, are you clear? Flagstaff responds back, Flagstaff clear. Then the IC would say, I see the dozer, are you clear? Dozer clear. I see engine 3-1, are you clear? Engine 3-1 clear. And then the IC would just respond right back, Prescott, you're clear to burn. Right. So that everybody knows um, what's happening and they are clear. And my brother brought up a good idea of also possibly including the wind direction in that scenario. And you know, it, it calms things down. It gets yeah, things it in order. It, it, it clears your head. In the medical yeah. field, when you do the timeout, it's like a quick breath. Whew. Yes, we're all on the But same it doesn't page. take a ton of time. It's zero time. And, you know, my belief and others' belief in the investigation that we've done is that the crew died from that, from a, a back burn, from a fire on the ground. If that would have happened, possibly they would still be here. You know, I, I can't say, oh, that would have saved the guys, right? But that might have just... Taking a minute, let's clear, let's do it. Yeah. The other thing that we have next on here is that, which brings up, it fits right in here, is that firing ops done, can we not do those during the burn period? Yeah. <laughs> can we stop yeah. doing? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Yeah. Can we stop doing firing ops like it's an emergency? Can we do it in the morning or at, in the evening when, it, when the fire is easier to control and maintain? And you're not just adding more fire to an already right. desperate situation. Well, just like in your now, how they were planning on doing it at 4, 4.30. Yeah. That's the and they, and they dumbest burning, time to do it. And they were burning elsewhere on that fire at 2 o'clock. Yeah. Same, it's just a... Yeah, it, a, a, a hard, fast rule. Let's don't do that. Yeah. Why, why can't we do a it's, burn in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> when we plan to do a burn. Just do it then. Right. Yeah. But you guys were also bringing up that sometimes they just... They continue... if with a prescribed burn they'll start a, they'll plan a prescribed burn it's out there they have to alert people that it's happening and then it's probably the 
freaking windiest day of the year, and because of paperwork, they still say, well, we got to do it. Now, that's yeah. not across the board. I mean, right. we're No, we're but just... it, it happens. It happens, and that's a big yeah, that's, safety concern. That's not necessarily the specific reason. There's lots of reasons that they would want to push the burn for that day. Right. That, that maybe it's not the best day to do it, you know. There's other, other reasons. But those, those uh, prescribed fires, have, for me, have been some of the most dangerous fires that I've been on. And for the Forest Service or government employees, they don't get any hazard pay during that time. So on these other fires, they get hazard pay, which is an extra pay to the, because they're in a hazardous situation. But the prescribed fires, they don't get that. And you will be sitting in smoke all day long, holding some line at the top of some ridge, just breathing smoke basically all right. day. And you know that's way more hazardous than a lot of the fire, fire stuff you'll be doing. Well, or there's been scenarios where people just get rushed or you're in the wrong, wrong situation. They've, they've just been the most dangerous fires that I, that I was involved in, have had, or the closest calls to my life, I think, were on prescribed fires. Well, you know, I'll hear pretty regularly in the general public, people will still call them controlled burns instead of prescribed burns. But you're, you're not really always in control of those. And so I, you know, I like them being called the prescribed burns because they're planned than this controlled burn because it's not. Yeah. You still have all the same equipment that you've got on the fire, all the same dangerous equipment going on. Right. The fire's still there. And but if you're not doing it, if, if you're doing it, I mean, there's lots of different right, scenarios. Right, right. I just want to bring up, um, I, it got briefly mentioned, but I think the number one reason that in uns, unsafe situations are happening on the prescribed burns is because of the headache and the bureaucratic paperwork. If you don't do it on the day that they have prearranged, it is such a nightmare for your overhead to have to redo that process. So it's, it's like they make it so difficult to mm -hmm. get that process going that if you don't do it, it's forces their forces yeah, them into so it, yeah. it makes you have to say well gosh darn it we have to do this today right even if it's not okay to do it today do they really say gosh darn it <laughs> <laughs> i want to know no <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you find this series captivating. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at PennyUniversity at ProtonMail.com. Thank you, and now back to our podcast. So another thing, another one of these tragedies we see, at least in the Yarnell, and, and it seems like over and over, um, they'll put these weather forecasts out saying these horrendous winds are on their way. Um, I think it's, it's worth looking at seeing if, those, if that should be a trigger point. If, they, if they're going to predict weather, why not act on that weather? Why not say, if there's going to be 50 mile an hour winds at 3.30, nobody should be on this fire at 3.30. At 3.20 to 3.10, everybody should be in the safety zone. If you're going to say, if you're going to put it out there that th these winds are coming and you're going to predict it, then we should treat it that way. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. But, um, well, what, uh, one of another thing that kept coming up was beefing up resources. 
So what did you guys think about that? What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, when you're on a fire and you're, you're asking for things that you need, um, you need those things on the fire. You need the air attack. You need another crew. Um, you're not asking for it for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely times where you're not going to get that because it just doesn't exist. It's already being utilized elsewhere. So it's something that needs to be looked at. And that, I guess, has to do with government funding, right? Yeah. I mean... If we had more crews, if we were able to do, like we said, the wildland communities had their own crews, right. that would help. But um, also in the big picture of things with all of these crazy fire situations that are going on the last few years, it They're spending needed. billions. It's needed. Right. Where yeah. if they would spend the money on the upfront, yeah. it would save money on the rear end. Yeah. If you're, if you're putting things involved with... Um, um, fuels mitigation stuff that's going to save you in the long right, run too right yeah. and having the crews on that fire from the get-go when you ask for them the resources that you ask for then it could potentially be not be as big yeah. of a fire right as catastrophic you yeah. remember all the things that first ic was asking for oh yeah you get like a 25 percent of anything you ever asked well, for or nothing it or nothing yeah yeah it from from the get-go um, and you're and right. that was one that's in the urban interface. That should that was a priority fire, and that wasn't. He couldn't yep. get anything there. Yep. So let's get that stuff beefed up. And again, that a lot of that has to do with education, education of the local community, education of local government, but also education of big government. Because you know there are some people that sitting in their office they don't know, they don't know what's going on. Mm, I don't know. A wildland firefighter union, and I'm and I'm not a union girl, so that's crazy. That just came out. Sorry, that's not even on our suggestion list. <laughs> so in past episodes, we talked about those SIG containers, those fuel containers, and how there could be a better design for those. They wouldn't be as there wouldn't be that possible ability for those things venting with the right. Because you brought up the fact that when you guys went out there, they were all over the place and. Basically, they're spraying fuel. Yeah. And like like all those Embry-Riddle things, I'm sure there's somebody out there that could come up with a better design. There's oh, heck yeah. Easy. There's yeah. a brilliant human being out there, and it's probably something extremely simple. Yep. Right? It just needs to get done. Um, we've talked about there is a group down there based in Tucson. They're called the Lessons Learned in the wildland community. And they look at situations and incidents and um, give kind of what, the not the best practice of it, but um, they try to observe things and they try and educate. But what, did you tell me, Doug, there were only three people? I believe there's only three people on that, in that group. And they, they have, they get all sorts, they get th at least a thousand every year of things that they need to be looking at. Someone's saying, well, this happened on this fire. Can you guys look at this? Can so you guys look at this? So those three people are, if something goes on on a wildland fire, they can report to them that this is happening? Yeah. And there's only three people there? Yep. Okay. So, I mean, they're way, they're way understaffed, way overworked. I think they do a good job. They have a lot of good in, info that they get out to people. 
but they need more people to be doing that job. Right. There, there should be... A, there should be a hundred people doing that job. Maybe, maybe by division, like the Southwest division, you know, maybe something like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I also, you brought up the idea that they're still being paid by the government. Right. And right. we've seen how those investigations go. And I'm not saying that these guys are involved at all in like covering right. things up or anything. I think these guys, the stuff I've seen from what they've have is all good info, but there's that dark idea you know, why not right. have them separated? Yes. Or another group that's separated from that and have more people that are able to um, do all this work. They have to be just buried in work. Well, you know, a lot of that, too, um, has to go with that true investigation. The lesson learned did the 21 minutes. You can go on and Google, you know, the video, the 21-minute video that they showed the families when mm -hmm. they released the serious accident investigation report. But they were working on the information given to them by the slap shot investigation. Here's our investigation. Build a video. Yeah. You know, so maybe if the lesson learned worked with an independent investigation group like the NTSB, uh, you know, like OSHA, like ADOSH, Arizona's Department of Occupational Safety and Health, then they would have true information yeah. to work with. Yeah. And that would help them a lot, but I think even if they had true information, they still need a lot more people yeah, working there. Yeah, they do. Um, kudos to the three guys, I yeah. guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Um, and this, this always opens up big discussions, and I, and I love it. I have said for the longest time, and I repeated, I said it earlier, um, I, said, I have said it in earlier episodes, that no one should move on a fire until key individuals arrive at IC command. One of them is the safety officer. And I yeah, know that that's a lot of when I heard, right? When I heard that the first time, it, it stopped me in my tracks and again tonight. And I was like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. When we respond to a fire as an engine crew, you're the first ones there. And you got to get on that fire and get it out. But I think now that... You, we've talked about this some more. I completely agree. When you get called to respond after hours to a fire, you have technically, and most people get there a little faster, but you have technically two hours right. to be at your station. Right. So in that amount of time, I completely agree that if they had those resources available... And that comes could, to resources. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, we just don't... There's not enough, you think of a safety officer beating you to a fire when you're in an initial attack scenario, and that never happens. But it's something that should be happening. Right. Yeah. Why? I think it needs to be looked. Why isn't it happening? Yeah. Maybe because there's not enough of them. Right. And or maybe because it, certain positions on IC command just haven't been considered important. Yeah. And, you know, well, a single person in, a, in their vehicle who's ready to go should be able to beat any crew of people anywhere to any fire. I I <laughs> agree with you fully, 100%. There are certain key individuals that should be on that fire before anyone moves. And I, I get that there are catastrophic fires and people need to jump on them quickly. I, I get it. But you shouldn't jump on something quickly in an outrageously dangerous situation without somebody covering your back. And so, you know... I kind of hold true to that, and I know 
I converted Doug. <laughs> well, it's just a different frame of mind, you know. Uh, it's not the way it's ever been done, but I think it would be a better way. Yeah. It would, it would take a lot, but it would be better. Um, and since we're talking about kind of positions, key positions, one of the things that kind of didn't work well at Yarnell was that Eric Marsh was moved from um, uh, superintendent. superintendent to division. Yeah. So. And it would just caused a lot of confusion on that fire. Right. Um, I think it worked well for them because he was able to be the one that decided their tactics. Because mm-hmm. I don't think there was another division that would have decided better tactics for them. Does that happen on a lot of fires where people wear multiple helmets, you know, different jobs? Yeah, you know, especially, grab you? especially yes. on the initial attack, which that fire wasn't, but which they treated it like it was. Right. Yeah. And you've been on fires where things have just, you know, hey, Bob, you're now this. Yeah, it, it happens fairly often, where, spit, yeah. where it, at least your soup gets pulled to do a different position, and then your, you know, then your crew members kind of move up the. But that the leaves chain you shorthanded, though, doesn't it? Yes, yes. So you're shorthanded, and. And obviously, on this fire, it caused some dangerous confusion yeah. between uh, air attack between other people. Yeah. So assignments should remain as assignments given? Or I don't know. I think it's just something which should be looked at, you know. Yeah. I don't know if... I don't think that confusion would have happened if they had moved Eric to a different division. Right. Like, so he wasn't in charge of his crew anymore. Mm-hmm. Then there wouldn't have been that confusion. Right. But then that division isn't do, deciding the tactics for his crew, which puts him... Another division is going to decide those tactics, which isn't... Oh, could be a yeah. bad scenario, you know. You know, you don't know who you're going to get, right? As a division. But so, if we had better training, yep, no, we no. wouldn't have to worry about it, yep. right? Well, we've come up with a lot of changes, and um, I want to thank everybody that sent some uh, change suggestions. Um, but Doug, you and I have been trying for years, really. Yeah, it feels like it feels like we've taken every path that I can think of legally through union, like every path we could think of to get these ideas or changes or even just talking about that investigation out there. Yeah. Well, we've tried nonprofits. We've tried legal services. We've tried newspapers. We've tried everything. This podcast has been healing, I believe, for us. Um, But changes need to come from a grassroots effort. That's the only thing I can think of. If anybody out there has an idea or a way to get these changes going, please yeah, either run with it or let us know. Yeah, because we think that these ideas are valuable and lives depend on it. And the future of the wildland community needs to change. Um, it's, a, it's a great group, but we want to help out. So these ideas. We're done. Thanks, Doug. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks to say. Um, we appreciate you being here. It's it's nice to have somebody other than me picking on Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that job any day. <laughs>